Stages of Faith. Moderator, John Pauline. Dr. Johnson will have prayer for us. Let's bow our heads. Holy Father, we are grateful for the opportunity to worship in this manner, and we're thankful for your presence here. We pray for your Holy Spirit. Help us to remember that you are with us through every season of life, whether it's good or bad, in between, you're always with us, and your presence is always guiding us. We thank you for your love, your mercy, and especially for your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. What I'm going to share with you regarding the stages of faith and the title that I've chosen is Faith for a Lifetime, Walking with God Through the Seasons of Life. And I I love sharing this because, frankly, of all the things that I've written, of all the things I've ever studied, uh, this by far is the most life-changing material I've ever experienced. And when something changes my life, then I'm eager to share it with others. In fact, I determined a long time ago not to preach on any topic that hadn't changed my life. It's possible to preach on things you know nothing about or even don't care about. But a long time ago, that just didn't seem like a a, a route that I wanted to take. So I'm sharing with you something that probably is as meaningful or more meaningful to me than anything else I could share. We'll begin with a couple Bible texts because one may always ask the question, in what way is this based on the Bible or is this just, you know, sociology or whatever? And and the reality is there is a whole scholarly discipline on stages of faith. And you might know names like Kohlberg and uh, Fowler, uh, and others, and uh, there's been a lot of research and study, and basically what I did here was take a look at that literature, uh, examine it in light of what I know about the Bible, what I know about Ellen White, what I have learned from my own experience. And so I've made some changes. This is closest to the uh, direction that you'll find in a book by Janet Hagberg, that's entitled The Critical Journey. So if anyone wants to go really, really deep into the subject, that's the one I would recommend the most. I don't follow it in detail. Uh, there are some changes that I just felt from experience and scripture and so on made more sense to me. And there's been a lot of positive feedback from those who have heard it. So let's go to uh, a scriptural basis, Second Peter 1, verses 3 through 8 says, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these, He has given us very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith. You notice that? To add to your faith. Now, is it faith is not a static thing, something you can add to. Add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. And uh, you know, one might be intrigued. Why don't we uh, create stages of faith based on these categories? And I know people who have sought to do that. It's just. 
those efforts have never struck me as particularly useful. So, and until something comes along that changes my life, I'll, you know, I'll say, well, I'm not entirely sure where Peter was going with this, uh, but he's certainly affirming the idea that there's going to be growth and development in faith. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you don't want your walk with Jesus to be ineffective or unproductive, it's critical to grow and continue to grow, is the point that's made here. Mark 4 is another text, and perhaps the most famous text in this regard. Jesus uh, also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. You'll notice a couple of things. Faith is developmental. There's progress. There is development. And also, it's not by human effort. In other words, you don't progress through the stages of faith by trying. Uh, you don't progress through them by strategy and effort. I'm not sharing this with you with the idea, here's a strategy so you can grow your faith. It's more descriptive. Here is what happens when God is growing your faith, when you are yielding yourself to him and allowing him to produce the development that he would like to put into your life. Christ Object Lessons, page 63 and 64, I think speaks to this as well, and, and she's discussing Mark 4 here. The life which the Creator has implanted, He alone can call forth. Every seed grows. Every plant develops by the power of God. The work of the sower is a work of faith. The mystery of the germination and growth of the seed He cannot understand. But He, the farmer, has confidence in the agencies by which God causes vegetation to flourish. So in Christ Object Lessons, she clearly sees plant growth as an analogy for stages of faith or spiritual growth. And then, of course, the famous statement, and the one that perplexes, infuriates, puzzles, and exhilarates uh, various people who know this material. When the fruit is brought forth, immediately he putteth in the sickle because the harvest is come. Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of himself in his church. When the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. It is the privilege of every Christian not only to look for, but to hasten the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Were all who profess his name bearing fruit to his glory how quickly the whole world would be sown with the seed of the gospel. Quickly the last great harvest would be ripened, and Christ would come to gather the precious grain. So here you have the challenge that in some way, spiritual growth is linked to the return of Christ. 
and the, the ultimate triumph of God's work here on this earth. So I think the subject is clearly vital. I don't assume that what I'm going to share with you is the final word, but I do believe that we need to be talking about these things. All right, so let's come to the stages of faith, and we're going to have six stages. You could have five, I suppose. You could have seven. Uh, various people have different numbers, and you could call this actually eight stages, as you will see, but uh, we'll go with the six as being the primary stages. Each of these builds on the preceding one. So spiritual life grows stage by stage. You can't go from stage two to stage five. Uh, there's a natural progression through the stages, just as a tree uh, sprouts and then gets uh, stems and, and then gets leaves and then there's flowers that come and then comes fruit and so on. There are cycles that build upon one another, and that seems to be the case spiritually. The first stage is what I would call acquaintance with God. Uh, where a person develops a relationship with God. If you have no relationship with God, then this doesn't apply to you. But when we do come into relationship with God, it tends to begin with this early stage that we'll describe here. People tend to come to God out of two triggers. One is awe, and the other is need. In other words, some of us come to God because we simply run into him. We encounter him in our experience. It could be a church service. It could be out in the wilderness somewhere. But suddenly you just become overwhelmed. God is real. He's out there. And he's in my life. And it matters. So awe, you know, simply, wow, you know, there is a God. He's real. He's with me. The other option is just you're so blasted out of sorts and everything is falling apart and uh, hitting bottom as uh, sometimes we could say. You cry out to God out of desperate need. And the Psalms have plenty of illustrations of both of these, I think. Children probably tend to come to God more out of awe. Adults tend to come to God uh, more out of need. But uh, these are the two primary routes, I think, to coming to God. So how do you recognize a person who's in stage one? Obviously, in the initial stages, if it's a young person and they're just saying, man, you know, God came into my life and he did this and I had this experience and so on, that's just what you would expect. There's a focus on the initiation of the relationship. Man, I was over here, but now I'm with God. Awesome. You know, say, that's the fresh, new Christian who is in awe of what God is doing in his or her life. And then there's, particularly with mid to upper age adults, there's the story of weeds that have been sown and, and all kinds of unfortunate youthful acts and so on. And then your life falls apart and you get on drugs and your, your, your marriage falls apart, everything, you know. And then, you know, I reached out to God and, and now he's building into my life. So there's two basic stories there that come toward the beginning. On a more ongoing basis, you could call this the romance stage. It's, it's where you're just in love with God. And it isn't deep. It isn't theological. It's just an experience. And God is good all the time. And you have a new lease on life. Things are going well. You haven't thought it through. You just know that where you are is a good place. There's a kind of childlike openness and trust. Remember Jesus said, unless you become as little children, you cannot what? Enter the kingdom of God or inherit 
the kingdom of God. Now, he doesn't say, unless you become as little children, you can't stay in the kingdom of God. He doesn't want us to stay as children. Sometimes we get the idea, well, we should be childlike lifelong. And there's a lot of joy in that uh, to some degree. But he is saying that there's a there's something about children that is natural to entering into relationship with God, and that is is the critical piece. Children are open. They are willing to learn. They're eager to learn. Learning is the fun part of their life, unless they go to school. Uh, that sometimes squeezes it out. But uh, children tend to be open to learning, uh, have joy in research. You know, let's see what this mud tastes like and things like that. And they trust. They trust adults. Uh, sometimes too much. So uh, there's something very childlike about the, the opening of relationship with God. Now, at each of these stages, it's possible to get stuck. In other words, you don't fall out of relationship with God. You don't leave the church or anything like that. But you just kind of get stuck at that stage. And plants that stop growing often die. And so this is a matter of concern. And one way to get stuck in this stage is uh, people can get stuck with a sense of unworthiness. After the initial bloom has worn off, they come to the conviction that they didn't really deserve to be in relationship with God. And if, if the gospel has not been clearly explained, if they've come into more of a punitive or works-oriented sense of relationship with God, they can develop a strong sense of unworthiness, and uh, sometimes get overcome by a lack of knowledge. If they don't pursue knowledge of God, if they're just reveling in the experience and never go beyond that, they can get ambushed by their uh, superstitions. You know, things like, well, if I forget to pray, then God will be mad at me, or a vending machine view of God. Well, you know, if I pray, then this should happen. If it doesn't happen, then what's the problem? So you want to encourage people to continue growing and moving on. And how does that happen? Usually feeling accepted by God. If a person uh, genuinely feels that God is good and that God is on their side, spiritual growth will come. That's one of the reasons why how people look at God is an important part of spiritual growth. Because if you're afraid of God, if you don't trust God, then you're not going to yield yourself to God to grow in spiritual relationship. Community support can be an important thing. A community that's safe, a community that's open and accepting is a place where people can grow spiritually. And then mentoring. Relationship with a mentor is one thing. A mentor can encourage you to grow, to learn, and develop in the faith. Stage two is what I call the discipleship stage or the learning stage. And it's a time of learning but also belonging. Uh, People in stage one are often not associated with a church or a religious institution. They may simply be on their own connecting with God and talking to their friends about it. But usually at some point you join a community which is also in relationship with God, and get a sense of mutual belonging. You explore a belief system, absorb it, practice it, becomes a major part of this stage. At this stage, there's a strong sense of identity. People who join a church at this stage know 
that they found the right church. They know that they're in the place that God wants them to be. There's a lot of confidence at this particular stage. And spiritual growth is stimulated by a strong leader, a mentor figure, or it can be stimulated by books. Often people at this stage are just voracious readers of spiritual books. You know, go to the Adventist Book Center and clean out whole shelves and and spend all kinds of time with that, to go on the Internet looking for helpful information and so on. Say so it's a learning a growing stage. I think of Timothy and Paul as one of these kinds of relationships in the New Testament. I think also of Jesus and his disciples, this mentoring student relationship. And a very important feature at this stage is the mentors that you choose. If the name of your mentor is Osama bin Laden, uh, not only is he not there for you now, but he would not have been very helpful earlier on either. The mentor has a very important role in steering the kind of spiritual development that will take place at this stage. And so pastors, for example, want to be very watchful over new believers and the kinds of mentors they choose. And in today's world, with the Internet and, and, and many other sources, there's all kinds of possibilities for mentors that may not be helpful or healthy to spiritual growth. How do you recognize if you're in stage two? Well, it's a follower stage. You have people who are eager to follow. Uh, they often have, you know, a series of gurus. They may be television preachers. Uh, they may be pastors of large churches. They may be uh, teachers at an academic institution. But they're looking for people to follow. They're, they're wanting to learn and to grow. So they tend to be respectful of authority until they get stuck. And we'll, we'll come to that a little bit later. If people get stuck at stage two, this tends to change. But the genuine stage two, the growing stage two, is a person who's respectful of authority. They recognize that anybody that God has appointed to be in charge of a community or in charge of a church or someone is someone to be treated with great respect, to be listened to, to be obeyed wherever possible. And they tend to have, as I mentioned, a high degree of confidence these are, are people who know where they are, and they know what God is doing and, and leading in their lives. A concern at this stage is there tends to be a lack of spiritual flexibility. This kind of one line uh, that is necessary to follow, and anybody who disagrees with that is probably not in the right place. You know, they're not where they should be at this point. So it can be just a, a touch of inflexibility. At this stage, and that's natural. That's it's part. It's of setting a foundation. In order to have a solid foundation, you have to put boundaries around it. So this is sort of a boundary setting uh, stage. If you're familiar with that type of language, it's a, it's a time when people tend to like easy answers, clear answers. You know, the scholar who says, "Well, it could be this way, or it could be that way." You know, or maybe uh, in the Greek it was this word, or maybe it was that word. We don't know what the original is. Now, that can be very disturbing at this stage. It's, it's, it's not a happy place to be. They want things to be settled, to be clear, that everything is where it should be. Getting stuck. A lot of people get stuck at stage two because reality is most 
Christians tend to be followers rather than leaders. And it's, it's important at some point that every person, I think, come to exercise spiritual leadership. It's why people have noticed that children who not only go through pathfinders, but end up guiding pathfinders, in other words, they work with the younger kids, they tend to stay in the church because they don't simply stay at the learning stage. They become leaders. They become spiritual guides. And that means they're continuing in their spiritual growth. If you're always a pathfinder and never a pathfinder leader, uh, that's to be getting stuck at the stage of discipleship and learning and growing. And people who get stuck at stage two, the characteristics of the stage can become quite negative. They can be legalistic. You know, everything's got to be black and white, judgmental, pointing to everybody who doesn't think the way that they do. They can be rigid in the approach to the faith. There's only one way to think, only one way to act. There's often an us-against-them mentality. You know, my group is right, your group is wrong, my faction is right, all the other factions are wrong, and it can be a very divisive stage of when people get stuck here. How do you move ahead? You can move ahead through nurturing relationships. And that's a challenge because we don't like to nurture Pharisees. We like to stay away from them. Yet the only way to redeem a Pharisee in the negative sense of that term is through nurture. Go ahead, Gary. Does your perception of God at this stage have upon your rigidity, your necessity to have black and white, your tendency towards intolerance versus tolerance. It seems to me that if you believe that God is black and white and all these kinds of things and is intolerant and and it's us versus them, then that's the way you'll be. Whereas if your concept of God is is different, then maybe you'll tend to have that same concept, although, you know, it's admittedly it's at this lower level. But it seems to me that who you're having this faith in will make a difference as how you apply it at the levels at which you are. Well, you notice for both of these stages so far, there's been a very positive view of God in the natural stage that is there. But when people get stuck, that positive view tends to change. For example, in stage one, you go from the romance to a sense of unworthiness and manipulation. In stage two, you go from a confidence uh, to uh, something narrow and judgmental. So I think when we get stuck, it seems to me that's uh, often associated with uh, views of God that may not be biblical. Yeah, Terry? Sitting here wondering what would precipitate a person getting stuck at any one of these stages. How does that occur? Well, again, this is more descriptive than prescriptive. So I'm not sure I can give you a, an answer that is completely satisfying on that. But it does seem to me that getting stuck simply means that you're satisfied with what you have. You're satisfied with where you are with God. You think you're in the right place. And if you're in the right place, then you don't need to grow. And people who do grow are threatening to you because they're not like you anymore. And so like if you have a husband and wife and the one is growing spiritually and the other is not, it can be very threatening and be perceived as a negative. So I think 
getting stuck happens when we become confident in where we are, when we start managing our own spiritual life and losing that sense of God, you know, right now, wherever I may be, I want to go where you want me to go. And if that's to a lower Slobovia or someplace I never wanted to go, I'm willing to go as long as I know that that's your will. And when we lose that sense of openness to God's leading, no matter what the cost, we can get stuck at any stage. The end. I guess my question is, if we become like that which we worship and admire and we don't see God as a legalistic, judgmental, or rigid God, then why would we be like that? Why would we get stuck if we don't see God as... Well, I'm, I'm kind of back toward kind of where Gary was at now. I've sort of switched gears. But I guess I'm what I'm trying to say is if God is not a legalistic and judgmental God in my belief system then how would I have those behaviors if we become like that which we worship and admire? Mm -hmm. Well, I would presume that if a person not only has a positive view of God, but a genuine openness to life change from that God, and I think those are not necessarily together. You can have a positive view of God and yet not really want to change who you are. You say, well, God accepts me. You know, he's nice, he's, he's, he's gracious, he's understanding, and he accepts me, and I'm good. And I think the key comes at the level of our willingness to be changed by God. And when we get too comfortable, then we tend to get stuck. All right, Dan? Well, we'll get Larry first. He got the mic over here. I think looking at my own life, it's possible to get stuck at those stages and thinking that you have a very open view of God that later on as you look back, you realize you didn't. So at this stage too, yes, still being in love with God and believing that my belief structure was the correct one and everybody else's was missing the greater light that I was seeing, I think you then move on and realize that at that point, I did have a very legalistic view, even though I felt I didn't. Well, if you're proud of your knowledge of God, you probably don't have an accurate knowledge of God. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes, go ahead. I think another way of looking at why I want to get stuck has to do with effort and energy. I think that to grow, as we all remember, those of us who went to school, how painful it is to study for a um, examination or getting ready for a field trip or doing or, or for a project it just takes energy versus sitting there and doing nothing and you know the penalty is of course if you do nothing you get an f at the end of the course but the analogy is effort and i think many of us find it uncomfortable to continually put in the kind of effort it takes to grow but i think that's a very central part of the christian life and i think the the deal, I believe, that we don't realize is that God is putting in a lot of energy, too. And so it, as we put in energy and effort, God is doing the same thing. And so it, it is a relationship kind of thing, as all relationships are, in which it's essential that both sides put in effort. One side cannot be active and the other side be passive in, in any good relationship. Yeah, just to clarify that just a little bit, we don't grow spiritually by our effort, but there is a choice. There is an effort in allowing God to uh, to do the growing. Just as a farmer has to, you know, plow the soil and sow the seed and so on, but yet the farmer doesn't grow the plant. Yeah. 
Okay. So what I'm seeing here is this is a natural progression of the Christian walk. And, and if you're at this place at some time, do not be discouraged because you're just walking the same path that many, many millions of people have already walked. So this is us. This is how we, it works. Do not be discouraged. Continue on. So if, if you are, are working with people who are stuck, the, the way to get them out of stuckness is not to point out their stuckness, not to yell at them, you know, not to punish them and things like that. It is nurture. They need to experience nurturing relationships. They need to have opportunities to serve. And that's risky in a community with somebody who's in stuck stage two. To give them a chance to serve could give them a chance to abuse as well. But it's the only way that they can come out of that shell that they sometimes get stuck in. Now, I remember a man in one of my churches who had been on the Eastern Front in World War II. And his face was quite scarred up. And he was a person who was just constantly, I mean, he didn't want to relate to anybody. He'd come in to the church service after it had already started. He would slip out during the closing hymn. And nobody just seemed to know who this guy was. And he wouldn't talk to anybody. And I remember after a while, he began to stay through the end of the service. But he still didn't want to talk to anybody. And I would see him standing at the edges of the lobby, just watching. And I was standing by the outside door. And when I'd turn to greet somebody, he would go right past me so that I couldn't greet him or I couldn't shake his hand or anything like that. And this would be week after week that would happen. And, you know, I asked people about him and said, well, nobody really knows the guy because he just seems to be shell-shocked is the term that they used. And so I, I kind of made this a project. And so one day when he did one of those dashes out the door, I chased him down the street. <laughs> hey, I said, uh, he said, what do you want? And I says, I just wanted to, to shake your hand. I just wanted to greet you. Why? You know, why would you want to do that? And I said, well, because you're part of this body and you're important to me. And so, well, why would I be important to you? I just, everything like that. And so this happened for a while. And I, I kept chasing him down. And finally he, you know, big progress. He actually went through the door and there was a bit of a smile and then he was gone because he knew I'd trouble him less if he just went along with the program, you know. Well, the day came we had nominating committee. And it came up, nobody wanted to be religious liberty leader for some reason. I said, well, you know, what about this fellow? Really? What do you think? I don't know. Well, why don't we ask him? You know, give him something to do. Give him a piece of the thing. And I went to him one day. I said, you know, we got together and we decided to ask you to be religious liberty leader. Why? Why did they want me? You know, it's just, it was kind of like this for a while. And finally he says, okay, I'll do it. What do I need to do? I says, well, once a year, there's a promotion where you, you know, get up front, let people know what the magazine is like, the kind of people that are getting it, you know, the congressmen and the lawyers in town and things like that. And could they contribute so that we can provide these magazines for people? And, and by the way, you're supposed to preach the sermon. Now, I, there was a lump in my heart as I came up with this because I said, what a risk this is. And he says, okay, I can do that. And now I'm saying, oh boy, what have I done? <laughs> well, interesting enough, three weeks before that sermon was due, he came up to me 
Now, this boy was I thanking God. He came up to me and he said, you know this sermon that you've asked me to preach? He says, I have it ready. But he says, I don't want to give it to the church until I've preached it to you first. And I want you to let me know if it's okay. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> and so I said, okay, a Monday I'll be in the office. Come on in and you can preach me the sermon. It was unbelievable. He talked about the stuff he had never talked about. World War II, being on the front, and talked about the day that he took 42 bullets and yet survived. And he was completely covered in blood. And he says that day, he says, it, it's spiritually, it's been the center of my life ever since because I understand what it means to be covered in blood. He says, I'm covered by the blood of Jesus. There was not a dry eye in the congregation. And little by little, this man became a functioning part of the church. So it can be done. It can happen. But it's not going to happen through punishment. It's not going to happen through yelling at them. It's going to happen through a safe, nurturing environment. Churches that have a lot of stuck stage two people are churches that are not healthy and not growing. And if we encourage nurture, and, and it means taking risks, the people can be pulled out. Gary? The concept of what do we do and what does God do in this growth in faith, it's always been a, a tight line to follow because whereas I fully believe that if God does everything that's necessary for us to to grow, to know him, to love him, to follow him and all that, and, and the concept that the, you know the seed just grows by itself, even though we do propel the soil. But if we need to know more about God, he's provided us methods by which to do that, because by knowing him more and more, then we become more confident, and therefore that can mean that we can have more trust because we're more confident. It seems to me that we do have something to do. If we're studying for a program, we can't just sit back and say, uh, I ask you, God, to for some final goal, but I don't plan to do anything. You're going to have to do everything for I mean, I'm not going to read the, the textbook. I'm not going to do the research. I'm not going to do the experiments that are involved in that. Then I don't think God can just automatically do that. And when we often talk about medicine, would it be fair to the public to help people taking medicine to pass their tests when actually they don't know anything? That would not be the right thing to do. So can you discuss a little bit the tension between God doing quotes everything, but yet we're still responsible and still have effort. And I think that's what Dan was referring to. I mean, I fully believe that we have a part in this, even though that if it were only our part, nothing would happen because we just don't have the ability. But still, I think God requires us to be a participant in this. And I think that's sort of the idea of when we talk in another session about doing manual labor and doing things like this, well, part of it is because you feel like you were an integral part of that. You were part of it. You just weren't standing there and this happened without some kind of effort. I think it's been found out that gifts that maybe somebody has to give a nominal amount for to obtain are much more appreciated than just something that's flat out given to you. Well, it's one of the great tensions of spiritual life, isn't it? It's not going to happen because of anything we do. And if we do nothing, it's not going to happen either. 
You know, so it's uh, there's that there's that tension there. And the analogy is the farmer. Does the farmer do nothing? Of course not. The farmer does plenty. And yet the key thing, the vital thing, the growth itself, the farmer can only encourage. The farmer can't cause. And uh, the farmer can plow, can can cultivate, can pull weeds, can water, can fertilize, etc. But the growth still is a miracle. Larry? I think every farmer knows that all seeds that are planted, not all of them germinate and grow. So there has to be something in the seed or within us. We have to have a deep desire to want to progress. That desire by itself won't move me forward. But if I don't have the desire to move forward, I won't move forward. And so I think that's part of the struggle is it's very easy to not to just sit back and to enjoy and let others do and to just stay where I'm at because, well, that was a struggle to get here. And I, and I realize that the next level is going to take even more work. But I think as you understand and appreciate where you are in your stage, and you look back as you've, especially if you get through sta- stages, you understand that the next level is going to be tough. But when I'm through or when I'm in there, there's going to be something I'm going to learn or going to experience that will have made that whole process. When it's over, I will say that was truly worth the experience. And so it's that desire because you understand you're getting deeper. I think you're getting a deeper connection with God as you're going through this. And you're getting a deeper connection with other people and understanding your responsibility to them so that it enables you to grow. And it's that growth that becomes extremely satisfying. Moving forward. Stage three. We can call it the success stage, the leadership stage, the doing stage. It's where people move from being learners, disciples, to leaders and teachers. And now we begin to help others learn what we have learned and often develop a high reputation within the religious community, win awards, get praised, get your name on buildings, you know, all kinds of good stuff. I think of Moses at the burning bush. This was sort of his transition from stage two to stage three. I think of uh, Solomon. You know, after his coronation, uh, he's now no longer the disciple, no longer the son, but now he's uh, the leader and the one that's in charge. This is uh, a very special stage. You recognize it when people feel that they have arrived spiritually. They've reached the destination that God wants them to be. There's a lot of spiritual satisfaction, a strong sense of accomplishment. And this is a, a real feature of it. No longer need a mentor. You've become an expert. One of the key characteristics of this stage, it's a very positive stage, a very, uh, very good stage. But people have a confidence that means I don't need to learn from others anymore. And I'm the practitioner now. I'm the teacher. I'm the mentor. And I no longer need some of that. And so this can be a very difficult stage to mentor. It's a very popular stage. I mean, in most religious institutions, this is the goal. You want to reach this stage where tithe is going up, where baptisms are going up, where communities are growing, where their influence in the community is growing. I mean, it's a good place to be. And as far as 
most organizations are concerned, this is the pinnacle of the stages of faith. There's nothing better than this. It's a high level of confidence. You're doing what God wants you to do. You're in the place that God wants you to be, and everything is good. There's a strong sense of making a difference. Good place to know that you're not just taking up space, but you're changing lives, you're changing institutions, you're changing communities. It's a good thing. But you can get stuck at this stage as well. Now, what would that be? Well, you can become motivated by the three Ps. What are they? Possessions, performance, people. You can be motivated by the goodies that can come if you're very successful and very powerful and very recognized. You can be motivated by performance. There are people that are always chasing a goal and, and wanting to achieve and get more degrees and, and, and get higher positions. Uh, you know, you're, you're pastor of a big church, next thing is conference president. Now you're conference president, next thing is union president. And, and if you're pastor of a 3,000-member church, now you need a TV ministry and so on. So there's, there's always this performance angle. And then people, you know, to be motivated by the kind of people you can influence. And, and you have an in with more and more prominent, more and more important people. So the motivation, you may think the motivation is the glory of God. You may think the motivation is doing what is right, and subtly it can be other things. Perfectionism is a real challenge here. You want to be the best pastor in the conference, the best conference president in the union. A, a strong sense of, of competition can also lead to burnout. And burnout is usually a signal that there's a whole lot of self tied up in the achievement. And then this is the kind of person that retires and absolutely collapses because they lived for the applause. They lived for the recognition. They lived for making a difference. And to simply go back to being a disciple or just being an ordinary person is very, very scary and can be uh, debilitating in many ways. How would one move ahead if you're stuck in stage three. Obviously, there needs to be a deeper surrender to God. It needs to recognize that, in, in a sense, we're in a self-fulfilling prophecy of doing our own thing in the name of the Lord. We need to confront the truth about ourselves. And that truth may not always be pretty. Uh, find a mentor who's been to stage four and beyond. And here's where things get sticky because there aren't a whole lot of them. And you'll see why in just a little bit. It's around at this stage when something happens that we never wanted, never expected, never dreamed. And uh, it's what uh, I call the dark night of the soul. It can take many different forms, but the dark night of the soul is... The opposite of stage three. It's suddenly feeling like you've never made a difference. It's suddenly feeling like everything was a fraud. Everything was a mistake. It can come from a personal crisis. I mean, Job 
you see, going through the dark night of the soul. This is a crisis that came into his life and, and triggers these questions. Elijah is in the midst of the greatest ministry. And suddenly, uh, in, in the follow-through of that ministry, he goes into a deep, deep dark night of the soul. Some call it hitting the wall. And suddenly you just can't seem to go forward. Your, your spiritual progress up to that point was steady, and then suddenly, bam, you can go no further. The past certainties now become inadequate. You may question everything you've ever believed, everything you were ever taught, everything you ever did. You begin to wonder if it was all just a mistake. And it's tempting at this stage to feel like this is a satanic kind of a thing, that you are being steered away from where God wants you to be. But the true dark night of the soul is a call from God. It's an opportunity for a deeper surrender, a deeper intimacy with God. The dark night of the soul is intended to draw us back to him and closer to God. It can be precipitated by a lot of things. It can be a stage of life. And I I would say that in a typical Christian, someone born into the church and progressing naturally through the stages, it's going to happen somewhere between the age of 30 and 50, no matter what. It's natural as breathing that at some point, I guess we call it midlife crisis, right? Uh, at some point, there's, there's a certain stage where where you're kind of halfway there and you begin to say, well, am I where I'm supposed to be? Maybe, you know, maybe I should re-do uh, a course correction or something like that. It can be an external event. Could be the death of a spouse or a son. Could be a divorce in the family. Could be an illness. Some kind of event, although that maybe that's more of an internal event, but uh, some sort of, it can be triggered by things that happen to you. It can be triggered by internal events. Uh, for example, you might come to the stage where your daughter is the same age as you were when you were raped or something like that. And that can trigger an internal event, can be triggered by simply going through various stages of life. God seems to completely withdraw his presence. And, of course, you see that with Jesus, um, Garden of Gethsemane and so on. That is the sense of God's withdrawal. Now, a question was asked to me uh, earlier today. Is the dark night of the soul something that God imposes on us? Or is it something that comes for other reasons and God uses it? And I guess my answer would be yes. Just like we discussed a couple lessons earlier, I think it was Lesson 11 in the Thessalonians series, are the judgments of God things that we do to ourselves? Yes. Are they sometimes things that God uh, intervenes? According to Scripture, apparently, yes. And to know which is which in many situations is not possible. So uh, clearly, in the dark night of the soul, there's a sense that the prayers are only reaching to the ceiling that the consciousness of God's reality and presence that we had up to that point is now gone, and that can be part of this call. The remedy for the dark night, solitude and mentoring. People usually need to be by themselves. But take a look at this problem. So many of those to whom we looked for help in the past are inadequate guides for this part of the journey. 
Those who have been through this stage, the dark night of the soul, and are trained in spiritual counseling are unique people and are to be sought out. And as I said, they're kind of rare uh, in any church, in any religious entity. These kind of people are rare, and the kind of people we might naturally go to may not be able to help us at this stage. Points of concern. One way that people often deal with the dark night, and I could be wrong on this, but I'll catch you in a minute. I could be wrong on this, but it seems to me, from my experience, and I was a teacher of pastors for 25 years, it seems to me that perhaps 50 to 60% of most spiritual leaders, when they hit the dark night of the soul, they recoil from it. They say, you know, I'm the one that should be mentoring others, not the one that's receiving it. I'm the one that fixes problems. I'm not supposed to have problems myself. And, and, and to shy away from it and say, I need to go back to stage three. I need to go do the things that I did when I was successful. This dark night, I don't want to have anything to do with it. And they recoil from it and, and, and try to deny it. And they go back to stage three, and they can be very successful at doing that. No one else may know. The problem is, you will know that God called, and you said no. And so it's what I call a hollow three. It's a, it's a person who goes through the motions of spiritual life, and yet something is missing. And, you know, I could be wrong on the numbers, but as many as half or more of spiritual leaders, I think, are, are in a hollow stage three situation that uh, sometimes the Bible calls hypocrisy. Another thing that sometimes happens, maybe a quarter of Adventist pastors come to this stage and say, boy, the Adventist church is the problem. You know, it's the things that I was taught, the things I learned growing up is what they did to me in academy and, and, and so on and so forth. And we start putting the focus on theology and things like that. And we say, well, if only I could get to a better church or a better religious organization. And the reality is the problem isn't usually that. The problem is deeper than that. There's a third option, and the third option, of course, is to drink in the dark night and whatever God is doing to bring to us through it. Larry? Henry Nguyen uh, writes a bit about how his dark night, and, and I think it lasted 8 or 12 years, and I, I think he was, that he did return back to stage 3, because he does talk about how his he felt his work was empty and not fulfilling. Can you just talk a little bit about the time, kind of, I mean, I, that seems like an awful long time uh, for a lot of people who are, we're Americans, we're used to taking a pill and feeling better uh, in two days. Uh, Mother Teresa was in the dark night of the soul for the last 20 plus years of her life. We only found out through her diaries after she died. But she apparently had no sense of God's approval through much of the last decades of her life. It's, a, it's an agonizing story to read. It's Holy Spirit time. And I think for some people, a dark night may be relatively mild. For other people, it may be deep and dark and seem to last forever. For other people, it may come and go. It may be that if we simply drink it in, we can absorb the lessons and move on, and that maybe it lasts sometimes because we're resisting and and, uh, and so on. I don't think there's a set rule here. This is organic, just like plants. It grows on Holy Spirit time. But I think 
If you want an average or median or something like that, a couple of years. Was it Clark? You remember the Clark's commentaries? Adam Clark, I think, or A.C. Clark wrote commentaries in the Bible, and he went more than three years where he did not perceive that God heard any of his prayers. And yet he continued his work and his writing and so on, just tried to to tough it through. Uh, So this happens to the best of people. And I, I think it's important that we talk about these things, because if we don't, everyone who goes through such an experience, and most of us probably do at one time or another, is going to feel like they've been abandoned by God. And that's not the point at all, that God is actually using that experience to whittle away selfishness. We begin to realize that all the things we did for God were really done for the church or to please our parents or our spouse or who knows who. And you begin to realize that even even our mightiest acts for God were filled with self, self-interest and selfishness. And so God uses these dark nights of the soul to drain the selfishness out of us and, and, and bring us more to be more like Christ. And I don't know any other process by which that could really happen. Dan? There are ways to attenuate that experience. And, and I'd like to give you an example of something that happened to me that might be practical. But I remember um, in my academic life, the first time I presented a paper somewhere uh, or had a written paper, and I was I was absolutely chagrined when the paper was given back to me by my quotes mentor. I put all this effort in. I thought it looked terrific, and it came back, and it was just ripped apart. And it was a devastating experience. And yet the person who did it seemed to still be my friend. And after the second or third time this happened, I felt less offended by it, and we went through several more cycles of that before he said, well, I think it's good enough now to send out. I've had experiences like that in larger groups in which there's a team of people together and had people rip an idea apart. Sometimes it was my idea and learn to somehow not take it so personally. But it's this process of growth in being able to accept criticism, I believe, that once you learn to do it, it's easier, I think, to navigate through this stage because, in fact, that's what God's trying to do to us. He's trying to make us better people. And in that process... To the extent that we want to resist the criticism from someone that's more capable, I think it makes the process harder. So I think there's sort of a proportional thing to this. I mean, it's always painful to be shown you're wrong. I don't think anyone ever says that's a lot of fun to have someone knock the blocks off from underneath the thoughts you have. But I think the more one learns to accept the idea that we are far from perfect and that our ideas can be improved upon, then I think this process you're talking becomes less and less painful. I think there's a lot to that, and it's 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 from this core pride and so on that we resist correction and resist growth as well. And when we realize that that kind that kind of conservatism is is devastating to ourselves and detrimental to our spiritual growth, then we uh, I think can open ourselves more. Yeah, Gary. Is it possible that this doesn't have to be a plateaued crisis or something like this? I, I think of earthquakes. Which would you rather have, one huge earthquake or a thousand small earthquakes? Well, I've always chosen for the thousand small earthquakes for some reason. And it seems to me that if there's an attitude here that this is something, if you're doing this all the time, 
if you don't get to the place where you you know that you feel complacent, you realize that that's dangerous, that you say, no, you can never get to the place where you know it all. You never get to the place where you're performing as you should and you're constantly reevaluating. Then I think you can take off little pieces of these dark nights and deal with them on a continuum basis. And you don't have to go through this huge, huge thing. Now, obviously some people do and some people don't, but I think there's an alternate method that you can come up with the same results, but it can be done in a more gradual, more uh, maybe not quite so destructive manner. Secondly, is the, quotes dark night things that we're dealing with, is it always just our selfishness, or is it maybe we have, we're believing in the wrong thing. Maybe we're believing in a falsehood, and all of a sudden we realize what we're believing in doesn't hold water that it's, as you get deeper and deeper in it, there's more and more holes that you can't add. And so you're saying, it's okay, I, I have to reevaluate what's going on here. Is there an alternate way? Is there a better way? Is there something I'm missing? Uh, I think those are could all be considered part of these dark night experiences. And connected with that would be obviously self. I mean, there's always that in there. But there may be other issues that are what causing these doubts and I guess the summary is I think it can be spread out over smaller pieces over a long period of time, and there could be other issues that are concerned, not just selfishness per se. You're absolutely right. I think God, where possible, will give us the kind of dark night that we can handle and re- enjoy and, and so forth. And it can be you know, long, it can be deep, it can be fragmented, uh, it can go a lot of different ways. And... There's no set thing to say, if you're going through a bunch of dark nights, it's something you did. But the reality is what the dark night does do is is wean us away from selfishness. And there is selfishness there. Whether that's the cause of our problems at that particular moment or not, selfishness continues even in the statements about after the close of probation. Ellen White talks about the self that still needs to be worn away in the faithful people of God, even after the time when some would say they've become perfect, whatever that means. Wendy? From what you're saying, it sounds like a father who is chastising his son and daughter because he loves us so much. In the Bible, it speaks of him cutting the vine to make it grow properly or to hone the pillar so that we'll be stronger as a pillar in in heaven, in his kingdom. And it sounds perhaps to me that the dark night has something to do with with him honing us. I, I do want to make one thing clear. I'm not suggesting that all doubt is good. There's good doubt and bad doubt. There's a doubt that leads to more doubt, but there's a doubt that leads to faith, and that's the kind we're talking about here. Uh, there's a questioning of where one has been, questioning one's view of God. Uh, questioning how one perceived God to be working or not working in life, that can be a healthy thing. Uh, there is a negative kind of doubt, and Steps to Christ certainly speaks about that one as well. Okay, in the back. This time of testing that's called the dark night of the soul, as you mentioned, it does not appear to be of our own making. Our spiritual blindness, we don't know where we're at or where we're stuck. It's It's a quandary. But the 15th century Carmelite monk, St. John of the Cross, who wrote the book, The Dark Night of the Soul, and explained that in great detail, also went through some very tough times. 
and the quandaries that he went through with the catastrophe of that spiritual dryness, the dark night of his soul that he writes about so clearly. He's the same author of the book, The Living Flame of God's Love. So the quandaries of that catastrophe that he went through were in direct proportion to the quality of the epiphanies that he had. And it was not of his doing, either one. But it was God's revelation both ways, and it was just a matter of him accepting it. Yeah, absolutely. This is this is an act of God, I think. And I want to be clear that I don't think anybody, at least not if they're on the walk with God, is choosing pride. We're just not aware of it, the, the depth with which it has wound its way into our system. And that's where the dark night of the soul can can help us towards self-awareness and so on. Sherry. I was remembering a, a story that I think we've all heard about this young couple that got married, and they were very excited and very in love. And they were heading back towards their own farm in their wagon, and as they were driving, the horse started to go a different direction, and the, the groom you know, said, that's once. And they proceeded a little bit longer, and the horse did something else, and the groom said, that's twice. And they proceeded a little longer, and the horse did something different that he didn't like, and he shot it. And his new bride looked at him and said, what did you do? And he said, that's once. (laughs) (laughs) And I think it makes a big difference how we perceive God in this, because if we have this loving person that is our best friend, and we're starting to feel like we're going downward, we know we can trust him. We can be naked before him and feel feel secure. And so we can grow. We can have him help us test whether there's something that needs to be changed. But I think that's a completely different experience. It's not a dark night of the soul. It may be a dark night in our having to do a lot of work or understanding what's wrong, maybe being embarrassed about what we find and thinking, oh, dear, Help me get out of that one, you know. But I don't think it's a distrust of God if you if you feel secure in that relationship, if you really know what he's like. If you have a God like this husband that you love very much, and I've seen relationships among friends that just break my heart where one person is very abusive and the other person tries so hard to love them and to change their own reality so that they they think they're being right in loving this person. And yet they go through dark nights of the soul where somehow the reality seeps in and they're fighting it and it's scary to them and they keep trying to force it away, close off all these rooms in their heart so that they only see the part that can help them still love that person. And sometimes the people that I've seen go through the dark nights had a God like that. They tried to dress him up and pretend he was good and describe it describe the reality differently like these abusive relationships. But in the end, it seeped through, and they had a horrible dark night of the soul. And some of them left God completely. Some of them just readjusted to go back to what you call the hollow times. And I know that that's not always the case for a dark night of the soul, but I wonder if it's more commonly if you don't have the kind of a God where you can be naked before him and you know you're okay, you know you're loved, 
You know you're on this growing process, and even though it may be devastating, you know he's not hurting you and that he's there to help you up. Is that off base? No, that, that sounds good to me, yes. Mm-hmm. Here, yes, your name is? Jerry, can you hear me? Okay, for me, the dark night of the soul, I equate it to refining of the soul, like God's refining the fire of your soul. And I like what you said in your handout that you gave us. This darkness is actually a call from God. It is a positive sign. It's a sign that God is deeply engaged in your life, refining you. Thank you. Eric? Pain and suffering in the dark night of the soul are a requirement or a necessity for growth and maturity? And if so, what happened in Eden before the fall? Did they have to go through this if time had persisted? Or is it an element of uh, when sin entered that it became a prominent feature for uh, God to work with us? I think this is an observation of the reality that we live with. Uh, scientifically, we have nothing we can say about the experience of Adam and Eve. And I would imagine that to some degree this is the reality of humanity in the context of sin and all of its traumas. So I really don't know what I would say about before sin and how it worked then. Perhaps it was much smoother then. Observationally, at least most people go through a dark night of some form. They may not even recognize it as such. People go through it at different levels, and and we'll learn one day from God why the experience we had was just the one that we needed. Maybe tying into your question, probably God... Well, I don't know. For me, I think that for my personality, I know that I'm very thick-headed and my soul can become very hardened. And the deeper that I go into relationship with God, the more pride I notice surfacing. And I'm like, man, I didn't even realize that pride was an issue there. But as he continues to teach me, and I think that part of it could be looked at as being the dark night of the soul, but it's also him saying, you know, like kind of whittling away at me and whittling away at, at my pride and me being willing to I guess, submit to that as well. And while part of it can be incredibly painful and incredibly hard, I know that there's a loving God on the other end who's lovingly drawing me towards him. So that's the exciting part. Now the painful part is admitting my pride and my selfishness and acknowledging that because that's never fun, I don't think, for anyone. But it's great to know that there is a God on the other side who's lovingly drawing us to him. And your name is? Christine. Christine, thank you. And your name is? Miriam. I didn't have my little tag. This, the stages of three and the stage of the dark night of the soul, I guess it's a middle stage. They actually remind me of the the story of the martyrdoms of both uh, Huss and Jerome. And I'm not going to pretend to say that I know the stage that either of them was in, but the contrast between their two experiences, you know, they were kind of in the same place at the same time preaching a very similar message. And when Huss was martyred, the confidence that he had in what he was preaching and his mission was mind-blowing because even if you look at his last words, his last words were, bring the fire to my face because if I was afraid, I wouldn't be here. And then you contrast that with the experience of Jerome, who's actually in prison during this time. And he's imprisoned, I think, for longer than a year. And he's chained in a very uncomfortable position. He actually comes down with a pneumonia, I think, while he's in prison. 
And when he's finally brought up to the council, he actually recants and goes against what, I, I think what he actually does is he denies that he believes what Huss was saying was true. And he ends up going through, you know, this horrible mental, emotional, spiritual struggle after that, you know, not even counting the physical struggle he'd been in for over a year. And when he finally goes up and he takes back, you know, his his recant, and he's actually brought to the stake, his last words are, pardon me my sins, you know I've always loved thy truth. And to me it just hits the issue of, you know, Huss was martyred at the time of probably the height of his spiritual confidence. And Jerome is martyred at the time where he's probably gone through the dark night of the soul. And it's amazing how both, praise God, came to the final conclusion that was the same. But I just, to me, it really kind of, I see their stories in this discussion. I think that's very helpful, and it it, it does illustrate something I, I don't want to leave unsaid this morning, and that is none of these stages are wrong. They are all good. They are all right for that point in our lives. It, they only become an issue if we get stuck. They only become an issue if we cling to a stage and refuse to go on, and uh, that is something we have the capacity to do if we wish. So how do you help a person in the dark night of the soul? Obviously, one area would be patience. They're going to say some things that can be pretty ugly. They may do some things that seem off the wall. Patience is needed. Avoid shock. Just listen, empathize, uh, you know, hear out uh, what they have to say. Don't try to offer a lot of answers. You probably won't get a very positive reaction if you do. Uh, just be with them. Be present, like in the Job story. You know, he just wanted people to be with him. He didn't need a lot of advice. He just needed to be able to, to wrestle with God on his own. Sharing our own dark night of the soul. See, that's where mentors who have been through it, who, who have moved through that stage and beyond, are people who can go back and help people who are moving through that stage. And, and while such mentors are few, they are precious at this time. And, of course, sharing forgiveness and acceptance, uh, something that deepens the dark night is a sense that there are people you can't forgive, a sense that there are things that you've done that you can't forgive yourself, and, and to be ministered at that time with a sense of acceptance, God accepts you. You're not forsaken by God in the midst of this. Jesus was never truly forsaken by God uh, in the heart of God. And, and you are accepted even in this dark night as well. And just as Jesus came out of the tomb at the other end, uh, you will come out of this as well. This will not last forever. Stage four is related to the dark night, and it's what I call the journey inward. Because now that one has seen that some of the uh, the outward journey has its limitations, we begin to search for something new, the purpose of God. We thought we were living God's purpose in stage three. We come to realize that maybe it was more the purpose of the church or the purpose of our parents or the purpose of uh, people we wanted to please. And now we begin to raise the question, is there some unique purpose that God has for me? 
something that maybe nobody else has. This is really important for dentists, by the way. Any dentists here? Okay. Because, you know, if your purpose in life is to be a dentist, you'll be out of a job in heaven. Hopefully, right? (laughs) You see. But if your purpose in life was exercised through your dentistry, that purpose will remain. In other words, and, and no two dentists may be alike, or no two doctors may be alike, but the, the, the medicine and the dentistry are tools to exercise your purpose, but are not in themselves the purpose. And can we discover God's unique purpose for us? In many ways, we each have a witness to God's character that is unique to us. Through our own experience, we have walked with God in a way that maybe nobody else has. And we're looking for that personal direction for life, the healing of unresolved issues. Everybody at some point in their life has unresolved issues, and sometimes you can see it day after day, year after year, never getting resolved. This is a time uh, when we set ourselves to resolve those issues and to come to deeper relationships with each other, with God, etc., you remember the stages of friendship, and I, I, I won't stop to go through them again, but this is a stage where we want to go deeper and deeper. We're not willing to just deal with people in facts and reports and opinions and judgments. We, we want to go heart deep. We want to talk about failings. We want to talk about deepest needs. We want to talk about joys and sorrows. And at this stage, you can recognize people not just by their challenging questions, which they will have, but you can recognize them by the fact that they want to go deep in relationship with people. They want to be alone, like Elijah, but at the same time, they're eager for mentoring from the right person. They're hungry for a person that can actually relate to their experience and help them with it. Stage four is a move from head to heart. Up until that point in our ministry, it was it may have been more about the head, but now comes the sense of a heart-to-heart connection with people and with God. We get really tired of cocktail parties, you know, the kind of thing where all the conversation is surface and ha-ha-ha and, and so on, and we don't have time for relationships unless people are willing to go deep. The shallow relationships in our circle tend to be discarded at this time. And people look for ones that they can go deep with and explore extremely deeply. Can you get stuck at this stage? Certainly. You can sometimes get consumed with self-assessment. You know, people that are constantly plumbing themselves and, and never coming to resolution. You can end up wallowing in discouragement and negative thinking. You know, you can allow the negative thinking to take over and never come to a true resolution. But for those who work through this stage and discover God's unique purpose for them, there's an incredible joy, incredible realization that now I can be walking in God's unique purpose. We move ahead when we realize that in all of this searching, uh, we are hearing a renewed call from God to a deeper level of service. Gary? This stage, is it uh, different for an introvert versus an extrovert? Oh, uh, good question. I mean, I'm a, definitely an introvert in this idea of 
being alone to reflect and things like that. I mean, that's the way I've always been. The cocktail party, quotes cocktail parties, I've never enjoyed. In fact, I avoid them. But I've always just, I mean, I attribute that to that's the way I'm built. Other people who feel get very uncomfortable or wherever if they aren't don't have a crowd around them, and the idea of being alone is frightening to them. So it seems to me, you know, and that's innate in who they are. So it seems that this stage and even some of the other stages could, uh, you, you know, it might be more comfortable or less comfortable depending upon those those factors. And then one other comment, I sort of got the impression that stage one was a heart thing, not a head thing. It was sort of more like infatuation and stuff until you really feeling and experience certainly. Yeah, yeah. you know, so it, well, I mean, you don't know a person well enough at stage one, you know, in a rela- other kind of relationship to maybe have the intellectual. You know, uh, they 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 look, you know, they're funny and they're fun and they're good looking and they're this and that and the other thing. That's just sort of a more of an emotional than a. And so, and when you say you go from head to heart. You don't. Leave, I assume you're not leaving. That's the more head. the. That's more the stages of relationship. Yeah. If, if, you're if not the, leaving the head behind, yeah. are you? No. Okay. If I stage, just wanted to make sure. Yeah. That. If stage one is the greeting stage with God, you know, and then the exchange of facts and reports, it can be genuinely emotional, etc. But the heart stage is where you go past the surface relationship and you know other people at the level of things that they don't tell anyone else. These deep stages are are things that people don't reveal in public normally. And, uh, yeah, extrovert, introvert, I'd, I'd like to reflect more on that and have other people reflect on that as well. Uh, I, As I was saying, there's no one path here. There's no, you know, it isn't that everybody's going to go through exactly the same experience. These are broad stages in which we recognize ourselves at different times. I think some people may live in two or three stages at once. There may be a kind of a waffling back and forth sometimes that uh, people experience. Larry? Henry Nguyen, when he talked about his dark stage, he found comfort with people that he described who I would not have put. And the way he described them, that it was like they were probably in stage three or some lower stage. And yet here you're talking about uh, looking for a mentor would you talk about the fact that if there isn't a mentor that you can find comfort and maybe looking for the friendship of people that are in stage three and getting the, the positive feedback, there's something that would help with that? Well, I think at any stage there's great satisfaction in helping people who are at earlier stages. And I think that's part of the whole mission that we have. One thing I would just mention, you know, reflecting back on Gary a little bit, uh, generally, the research suggests that men are more comfortable in stage three and women are more comfortable in stage four. So that's why I think Janet Hagberg, she actually puts the dark night of the soul after stage four, that the search for purpose kind of drags you into it. And maybe there's a difference between men and women there. That's exactly where and when that will occur. My question was more... Um if the person who's in the dark night of the soul is rather than looking for a mentor who's already been through it, and if, as you say, and I believe that's true, that there are few that you're going to find, is there a way that a person can get comfort from the people instead of ministering to the people that are in stage three but getting the, the, the support that they need from people in stage three? I think the crucial re- support of someone in stage four is going to come from God in that case. 
And, but I think it's easier for them uh, to have mentors in stage four, five, or six. But God will be with them, and there's real relationship with God that occurs. And I, I don't think stage people can touch the deeper core of the problem. Yeah. Dan? I personally have never found trouble finding a mentor. My problem has been in recognizing them. I think that God is true to his word in sending those people to us. It's just sometimes we're not very receptive. All right. Stage five. So the journey outward with a renewed vision and purpose. In stage five, you go back out into the world. In many ways, it's like stage three all over again, but you go back and you begin doing some of the things you did in stage three, but now it's with a different kind of vision, a different sense of purpose. You're no longer doing it to please people. You're no longer doing it to please. And you remember Paul talking about these things in First Thessalonians. You are now doing it more with an eye to God. Uh, you're a transformed person. People have gone through the dark night, are changed people, and they can change others in, in ways that uh, could not happen otherwise. Stage five is a venture outside of self-interest. You're no longer going to build an empire of your own, uh, but your eye is more to God's kingdom, his empire. The motivation, the passion are more authentic, there's a particular focus on compassion. You begin to see the needs of people in ways that you never did at earlier stages. That's the head-to-the-heart thing, Gary, I think, uh, explaining it a little more. is you, you begin to feel where other people are at. In stage one, maybe it was between you and God, and, and you had some great feelings there and experiences. But other people uh, don't matter as deeply as they do now at this stage. And a person is often willing to step down. At this stage, they no longer need to be in the limelight, even if they are extroverts. They may be satisfied in being noticed by God, and they're willing to do something that's smaller, humbler, riskier, newer. I think of a, a, a couple of friends I've had who were in the general conference and on a fast track to vice presidencies and who knows what, that just dropped out and became pastors of small churches and, and have been content that's where they felt God was calling them to be. They were no longer driven by the ambition to be a star uh, within the system or whatever. Stage five leaders are comfortable with the idea that most people won't know that their efforts were instrumental to success. They may not get credit for positive changes in the organization. A stage five people are often the key to organizational change, and yet they do it in ways that don't draw attention to themselves. And uh, that's the shift. Stage three people like to be in the spotlight, and they feel they're doing God's work in being there. But stage five people are different in this way. So it's similar to stage three, but something is different inside. And here's a key point that you can really self-identify. Stage five people are peaceful rather than stressed and driven. If you're doing God's work and you're stressed and driven and overwhelmed, that's a stage three. And it's good at its time and at its place. But the stage five, you can be doing the same things 
and yet the outcome is God's. You know, it's not like you don't care, but you realize it's not on you and that you can accomplish these tasks uh, without burning out, without perfectionism, and so on. This stage arises out of a deep crisis, and like Daniel in the lion's den, you're no longer afraid. If you've been through the dark night of the soul, what can anyone else do to you? You know, so it's sort of a no-fear kind of place to be. You've you've been through everything there is to go through, so now uh, who's going to scare you now? People will often change their job or their mission. They may move to new places. They may step down from positions they were at before. It's the realization that finally perhaps they're living God's purpose rather than that of other people. But interestingly enough, this stage is much more misunderstood than stage three. People in stage five don't seem normal. You get me? They seem just a little bit strange to the average person. You can get stuck in stage five, may appear out of touch, uh, a very interesting one. Stage five people often appear careless about the faith. You know, people in stage two and three, they talk about spiritual disciplines, you know, and you, you have to pray so many uh, minutes a day and you have to be at a certain set times and you have to go do it like this and like that and and you go through all the rituals of spirituality and people at stage five just are with god all the time and they don't feel a burden and the need sometimes to do the exercises they did before and it may seem like apostasy to those who knew them before and say hey you're not so serious about the faith as you used to be what's wrong He's lost his way. Well, he really had it once. I don't know what happened to him. He's lost it. That that can often happen at this stage. We move ahead in stage five by more and more looking at the world through God's eyes, seeing people through the eyes of God, and sort of a sanctified, no-care attitude. doesn't matter what they think. doesn't matter how they treat us. But you want to do what God wants you to do, and uh, it doesn't much matter what other people think. Yet, at this stage, sometimes you again have the last thing that you expected. And that can be a second round of the dark night of the soul. But whereas the first one, the sequel, yeah. (laughs) Whereas the first one is driven perhaps by crises and internal needs and so forth, this one is of a different nature. You would think that the closer you come to God, the more appreciated you would be in a spiritual organization. If everybody's on the path, everybody's on the stages of faith, they're all on the journey. If you've reached stage five, they all will be saying, wow, I want to be like that. It's not the way it works. The reality is that the further you go in the spiritual walk, the more unique you become, the more out of step you become. And and I, I've just seen person after person who uh, has walked with God for a long time, and they say, I just don't feel at home in the church. And, and generally the feeling is, well, maybe this is a weird church, or, or this is a stuck church or something. It may not be. It simply is that uh, the spiritual walk can take you to a place that other people just do not understand. 
A second dark night of the soul, I think of Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac. He went through many dark nights before this. And this was one that was totally unexpected. Job's afflictions went on and on and on. Jesus in Gethsemane, he had two dark nights, the 40 days in the wilderness first, and then his experience in Gethsemane, the second dark night. And, well, since we're moving on to stage six, let's stop here with Gary. Yeah, I have a question about Jesus and dark nights. It's particularly the stage three dark night. If if this is primarily to wring selfishness out of us, Christ never went through that. Christ did not have selfishness. Did he go through soul searching? Yes, no question about that. He went through a lot of soul searching. He went through a lot of agony. But I would not label it as a dark night if that's what your definition of dark night is. The dark night is the experience, the feeling that God is absent, the feeling that things are kind of falling apart around us. Jesus' purpose for coming down here was to reveal God to us, to what he was really like, what he was. And I think his agony was, am I doing that? Am I doing it as best I can? Am I fulfilling the purpose that I came down here for, and he, I think he had to continually keep in contact with God. And Satan in the wilderness offered him a shortcut. He says, yeah, you, you came down here to do such and such, and I'm giving you an easy way to do it. And so I, I think the issues that he went through are a little different. And were they, you know, painful and, and all that? Yes. But even in Gethsemane, I don't think it was a matter of, ringing self of selfishness or that i think it was again in my well, maybe, maybe jesus experience gives us a bit of a window into the adam and eve thing we were asking earlier yeah yeah uh, there, there's a reality to that experience it, it would not be selfishness in the sinful sense yet I, I do think there's indications that jesus did have battles with self as opposed to relationship with god now it wasn't selfishness but did he not struggle uh, somewhat with the self? Wasn't that part of, of his I, incarnation? I think part of the thing was that he was being offered selfishness, and the question was, was he going to accept that or not accept it? And he didn't have it, and he didn't accept it. But all the things that Satan did to him would have been, if he had accepted him, it would have been an indication that it was for self self reasons and not for God's purpose. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. Stage six, if we go through that second dark night of the soul, stage six is the life of love, where uh, we become ruled by unconditional love, and that's the ultimate goal, compassionate, even under extreme hardship. God's love flows through us to others. Uh, It's a life of forgiveness where everyone is forgiven regardless of, of what has happened, and clearly there are probably not many people that ever totally reached that place. I think we probably all feel like we struggle in that area of forgiveness to some degree. We need material things less. People are just sort of not focused on that at all at this stage. There's freedom from anxiety, just an inner peace that reigns. We have little ambition to be well-known, rich, successful, noteworthy, goal-oriented, or even spiritual. The most spiritual people evidently don't need 
to show it. <laughs> Don't need to be always talking about it. Interesting. Can you get stuck at this stage? Probably, you know, peering out of touch, uh, etc. I think appearing to neglect personal needs. The disciples often interceded with Jesus and saying, hey, you know, eat something, take care of yourself, things like that. But how do you continue progressing in stage six? I think Mark 8.35 gives a clue for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. Think of this comment from Scott Peck, which kind of puts it together in some ways. We are attracted to a person who is one stage ahead of us. But we are perplexed by a person who is two stages ahead of us. That's why Jesus was killed. The Jews and Romans thought he was evil. You would think that the most popular person on earth would be someone who loves everyone without conditions. Isn't that logical? And yet the reality is the one person we will not tolerate is the person who loves our enemy. And enemies will reconcile each other to kill a person that loves their enemies because it just it's too upsetting to the world in which they live. And so by now you probably wished I had stopped at stage three. Life would have been a lot simpler, but it wouldn't have been reality. And the reality is if you're one stage ahead of people, uh, they're willing to listen. They admire you. If you're two stages ahead, you confuse them. You're perplexing. If you're three stages ahead, they'll kill you. Makes you feel like getting stuck, doesn't it? (laughs) But you see, when you walk with God, that walk with God is the reward. The journey is the reward. And you're walking with a God who is willing to step aside from the throne. A God who is willing to give up all for those who did not even appreciate him. So what you're doing as you're walking through these stages is you're tasting more and more of the experience of Jesus, more and more of what it's like to be God. And as you come to know and and walk with God more deeply, that in itself is reward enough. Summarizing some things, as you mature, the mentors get fewer because you're going through the stages and the people behind you can't really help you. As you mature, though, the opportunities to mentor increase, and I would suspect that uh, the real mission of retirement is freeing people up to mentor. And the pre-retirement task is becoming the kind of person that's worth having as a mentor. Nothing's more tragic than a person who retires and discovers nobody sees them as useful as a mentor. Because I think that's our primary role in retirement. And if we have developed the kind of character that other people uh, want to emulate, then in retirement we'll be very, very busy. I remember an old pastor from Hungary in New York City when I was growing up. His name was Solman, and his home was always a beehive of activity. He was 86 years old. But there was a wisdom and, and a spirituality that exuded from him. You just felt like you were walking with God whenever you were in that house. And so young people like myself, who was maybe 22 at the time, uh, 
love to be in his presence, love to listen to him, to make notes and carve through life. And I suspect, uh, if there's anything good going on in my life today, he had some things to do with that. Uh, this whole journey of faith needs to be a natural occurrence. It's not a program that I'm sharing with you. It's, it's a reality. And it's something that happens when God is allowed a full reign in your life. We mentor those who are at earlier stages because we've been there, and we can learn from those who are at later stages. The most fun, of course, is mutual nurture, relationships with people where sometimes I'm the mentor, sometimes he's the mentor, and we learn from each other and, and grow together. And I have several relationships like that that are deeply fulfilling. Those are the best kind of relationships, I think. Stage six people, of course, are mentored by God because there's nobody at stage seven but God to do that for them. And here's a point, I think, that we should ponder on just a little bit, and that is that I believe the Bible addresses all six stages, but not in the same texts. There are texts that are written for stage one and for stage two, stage three and four, and I think we will appreciate different parts of the Bible depending on what stage we are in. Is there a stage six part of the Bible? I think the Sermon on the Mount probably qualifies because most people read that and say, I'm not there. I don't even know how one would get there. You know, turn the other cheek. Somebody smacks you in the face, and there's not a single reaction in the core of your, your body. That's a place I think very few of us have ever tasted. And yet there are, you know, take up your cross, follow me, you know, texts like that. Some of these are, are stage six kinds of texts. And we relate to the parts of the Bible that speak to the stage where we are at any given time. Institutions and faith. Hmm. It's an interesting one. According to the literature, no religious institution has ever made stage four. Because in order to get there, you'd have to go through a dark night of the soul, and for an institution, that would be the destruction of the institution. And so institutions tend to stay stuck at stage two or stage three. The pleasanter ones are at stage three. The less pleasant ones at stage two. And that tends to be, and of course, the vast majority of people in any community will be people at stages one, two, and three. So that's, that's understandable. The common denominator is there. Hagberg speculates that perhaps if a religious institution was run by women, it might reach stage four because women feel more naturally at home at stage four than at stage three. But because most are run by men, the dark night is just not something they're gonna uh, gonna allow for that institution. You can just see institutions over time tend to be more about self-preservation than about the mission that they speak with their mouths. All right, so if religious institutions are at stage two or three and you're at stage four, five, or six, no wonder you feel like you're a fish out of water in the very place where you should feel at home. So what do you do? I mean, do you just become the rebel and just uh, throw rocks and all the rest of that? I suggest there's another way, and it's the way of mentoring. You can't mentor somebody at stage two from stage six or stage five. 
They will not know what to do with you. They'll be infuriated by you. And so the goal of mentoring 1 Corinthians 9 is to meet people where they are. To the Jew, I become like a Jew. To the weak, I become weak, says Paul. And so if you're at stage 4 or 5 and you're dealing with someone at stage 1 and 2, you need to go back to where they are. Now, you can go back two ways. You can go back out of self-preservation. That's the hollow three. You stop progressing spiritually because you want to protect something deep down inside. But there's another reason to go back, and it's, it's to go back in order to be a blessing to others, to come to the people in the way that they can grasp, in a way that they can follow, in a way that they can appreciate. So I think there is room, and every religious entity desperately needs people in these four, five, and six stages of spirituality to stay with the ship and engage themselves in the mentoring and the growth of people at other stages. And so if you feel like you're a fish out of water, just look around you and say, where are the people there that are willing to learn and willing to grow and let me invest in them? Even if the larger institution is not willing to accept our ministry, you can still engage yourself in those who are open and those who are willing. And and then comes my little theory. You know, people are distressed about Christ Object Lessons, page 69, and its implication that when the character of Christ is perfectly reproduced in his people, he will come to claim them as his own. And people look at that text and they say, when I am perfect, then Jesus can come. And the problem is, In the ultimate sense, we probably never will be perfect. Throughout eternity, we will recognize that we are far short of the glory and character of God. And so there will always be that sense of failure and and discouragement that comes from that. Is that exactly what she was saying, though? Take a look at this. Christ is waiting with longing and desire for the manifestation of himself in what? In the church. It doesn't say in individuals. When the character of Christ is perfectly reproduced in his people, not his individuals, then he will come to claim them as his own. Is her suggestion not so much some kind of Greco-Roman concept of perfection, which is kind of where the Western world is at? But is it rather more, not so much the individual, yes, we're all growing spiritually, and that's part of this process, but is she pointing to a time when one religious community for the first time in history, goes through a dark night of the soul and comes out on the other side as a community in a deeper walk with God than has occurred ever before. Is that what the time of trouble is all about? A corporate dark night of the soul? I may be totally off base, okay? That's just wild thinking. But it seems to me that that would give us a clarity with this whole concept of last generation perfection, that there's a real purpose for it, that God is going to be able to take that group and show them off to the universe in a way that was never possible before. Something to think about. Lois? It's my impression that no institution, including our church, is going to heaven. I said community. I don't think... uh... A formal organization will ever be able to go through the 
dark nighted. But your term community is not bound by those formal boundaries. And in fact, expresses that uh, many of God's true people are found in other organizations. And so it seems like that the circumstances will end such that those who are willing or are in the process of doing this will gather together as this community, and then that community can go through. So uh, along with what Lois was saying, I, I seriously doubt that the the recognized uh, legal organization of Seventh-day Adventists in whatever state it's in, it in itself will, would never be able to do that just because of the way it's made up. That doesn't mean that that can't be helpful. It can't give us a structure that it can't support the ability for this to occur, but I think it by itself will have lost its purpose and will not be able to do that, but it will have served the purpose up to that time, and then it can go on beyond that. If Babylon is a worldwide unity of institutional religion, then any institution of religion at that point will either go along or be destroyed. And the question that will face each of us at that time is, will we be willing to allow the institutional structures that we are related to to be destroyed if that's the price to be faithful? See, the temptation is always that we go along, even against our own faithfulness, we go along to preserve something that we think is more valuable. And the question at the end is, are we willing to allow the structures that we are comfortable in to be destroyed if that's what faithfulness means, if that's what faithfulness requires? Yes, Ted? I have a question first and uh, then a comment. So the question is, is it possible that our spiritual life, it's like going up and down, and so we go through different stages, and we may come back and go forward. I mean, oh, oh it's like a sad thing. Once I'm in stage five, there's no, you know what I mean? So is it possible because of our experiences in life, and things that we go through or people we meet. So we may go back and forth. So that's my question. I believe it's possible to be in more than one stage at a time. I think the research suggests that we have a home stage, but that out of that home stage we may dabble in the one, the next one and the past one from time to time. We may see ourselves in as many as three stages at one time. So it's not a, it's not a precise uh, stair-step kind of a situation. Okay, thank you. And, I mean, that was my perception as well, looking at my own life and experience. And my kind of comment is, and maybe you can uh, give additional input, but the quote that you gave from Ellen White, it's my perception if we read the previous pages, page 67, I believe, 68, that she is talking about this unconditional love and so her view of perfection is not like some kind of a sinless perfection that we achieve. You know, you go through these steps in life, but but it's more in the context of, of loving other people. So maybe related to stage six, because she's talking about forget self and serve others unconditionally, loving other people and so forth. And then she comes to page 69 when she, you know, the quote, the, the famous quote, what is your 
reading on that. Well, Ted is the director of the White Estate at Loma Linda University, so I will have to take that very seriously and reread the chapter. Uh, I think what you're suggesting is while the corporate idea is definitely a part of it, that she may be more plugged into the stages of faith at the individual level in the chapter as well, and that what what is normal in life today is that this is a lifetime process. You know, we may get into stage four earliest at age 30, 35, 40, something like that, and it, it, these things take their time. But what seems to be happening, if I've understood her rightly, is that in the crisis of the end time, people are making spiritual moves at a, at a rate that was not possible before, and that they will perhaps rocket into uh, some of these other stages much more quickly in the context of the ultimate dark night of the soul. Is that is that kind of what you're saying? And that maybe as a whole, the whole community will have walked through these stages to stage six. I see it on a more personal level. And of course, I mean, you have, yes, at the end time, you know, people moving dramatically into different stages. But she's really talking the context, really, for me, the whole thing, she's talking about this perfection in, in loving others, which is really the ideal and I haven't read it recently, but I think she's quoting Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus says, be thou perfect. But before that, what is Jesus doing? God reigns on the, the just elevating, the unjust, yeah. Yes, elevating these love aspects. Love others. If somebody loves you, you know, turn the other cheek. And you've been hurt. Moses says, do not kill, but I tell you. So Jesus is really doing the same thing that uh, Ellen White is doing. Okay, everybody go read the chapter and take everything I said with a grain of salt. <laughs> Gary. <laughs> you alluded to that uh, usually takes a certain length of time to go through these, and there, I'm sure you meant it was a generality. And then you said something that alluded to what I was addressing, that under certain circumstances that those time frames can be shortened or accelerated. I mean, I think we'd all agree that Christ was probably at level six when he died, and he was just barely 30 years old. So he obviously went through all this process in a much accelerated uh, rate as far as how long he'd lived, at least it is, seems to me. Yes, and I think that's even possible. Perhaps we could say if a person truly opens himself to God, they may accelerate some of these things, not that maybe we would want to after hearing all the consequences, but uh, there is one person I know pretty well who's uh, in the early 20s and seems very much to have gone through the dark night and and a number of these other things, but I believe that person is is being called by God to a very, very unique future. Of course, Christ was killed for it. That's, the as I said, maybe what we know now, we don't want to accelerate it any more than necessary. Yes. So, uh, final something to contemplate, and that is, you know, here we see the six stages with different names, being stated, and the question I would ask is, what do these stages of faith tell us about God? As you've been listening to this presentation, uh, is there something about God that jumped into your mind as, as you heard these things? There's a hand at the back. Sherry? When I was young, I thought that following God would be like, you know, having a little house with a picket fence around it and kind of a flat line for adulthood and for following God. It sounded a little boring, but it was very pious and probably what he wanted for me. turned out to be this wild ride 
and you have to hang on and you keep going forward in different directions that are counterintuitive. And I think I really like that about God, that we keep growing, that it isn't a straight line, that he cares enough about us to to keep us moving in a direction where there there's always a breeze against our face and an unknown ahead that, that we know we can trust him to, but it's going to be uh, an advancement and a growing and a learning. I love that about God. So your picture of God is on a motorcycle. <laughs> Larry. It is an exciting ride, and the, the part that's really great about it is that God is always there carrying you through, uh, being with you, uh, encouraging you to move forward, to stay where you are, and to not forget that he's there with you. So it's it's that constant, it's the, the best companion you could ever have is with you, even in the joyous stage two and three, and he's also there when you're experiencing the dark nights. And finally, the reward is to be able to sit down, as Abraham did, as friends, or as Moses, and have face-to-face conversation. And I think that's just a great calling and a great story. Thank you. Gary? Well, I think it shows a circle. Where were we in the beginning before sin came? And why are we having to go through all this process? Because we're trying to regain what was lost. And if what the ultimate is is this unconditional love, which is a relationship thing, it's, I mean, it's... Uh, yeah, you do things, but you do it because of of this attitude. It's a relation and an attitude. Then that takes us back to what was it that was there to begin with, and we lost it. So I, I think it tells us that that's where God was before, and that's where God wants us now and forever. One of the controversial parts of Christian faith is the whole idea of the Trinity. And I think there's value in that concept in a particular sense here. And that is that the truly monotheistic religions struggle with the idea of God as love. The Islamic God is merciful, compassionate, was never spoken of as love. Because before creation, if God is only one, then love, how do you love when there's no one to love? But if there's a trinity, whatever that means, and, and, and we'll probably be boggled with it throughout eternity, but if there is a trinity before there was a creation, before there was a universe, before there were creatures of any other kind, God was love. There was a self-giving within the family that we've only begun to, uh, to, to taste. And what I see in these stages of faith about God is, is this whole progression toward the self-giving of God, this complete emptying of self and a desire to please the others and to do that which is the benefit of all at the very core of God's being before there was ever a creation. And I think that's a beautiful piece that comes out most clearly in the, the doctrine as, as taught by many Christians, at least, or most Christians. Anyone else want to speak to this? Dirk? Something that is important here is that I think it was kind of voiced by a lot of people throughout when they were asking questions is that your picture of God, how you see God, is going to make a big difference on how easy you go through these steps and how easily you get hung up and 
and at each of these steps because if you see God in a view that is kind of arbitrary or exacting, that's really going to hang you up at some of these stages. Whereas if you see God as a loving God, which I think this whole picture shows in the end through these steps that God is, I mean, the unconditional love at the end would be the most like God that, that we could probably get to be. If you have that view of God from the beginning, it's going to be a lot easier process, and I think you would grow much faster. And certainly at each of these stages, it seems part of moving forward is nurture, accepting community, a sense of being loved and uh, and accepted, and so on. So yes, I think that the view one has about God will affect the speed with which one can go through these stages, the effectiveness with which one bears witness to that character. Well, thank you so much for staying by. It went longer, but hopefully some of the questions and issues were raised, and I think we're just beginning to learn what all is happening through all of this. So let me pray with you and let you go. Lord, it's been good to be together. Lord, I, I am so grateful for the material that I've shared here. I don't really see it as mine. I see it as something that came to me, was brought to me through the work of others. I see it as something that has touched my life deeply and given me an equanimity about where I stand not only with you but with fellow believers and that there is available a a peace and and a lack of stress that comes when one recognizes that what we go through is not unique to us, but that in some way uh, every stage and all of their permutations are from you and are leading us closer to you. So out of that conviction and out of that appreciation, Lord, we turn to you and say thank you, and we praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen.